Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Alrighty, alrighty. So Madigan, yeah. when we were planning out our Women's History Month, we were like, we have four episodes. Brilliant. <laughs> Beautiful. We're so on top of it and so <laughs> organized. And then it was like, oh, wait, there are five Mondays in March. Oh my God. <laughs> so this was going to be our closer. This was going yes. to be our Women's History Month closer um, because we have been focusing on the first wave this month. Uh, and Ida B. Wells has come up every single time, I think. Every single time. Max today could not believe when I told him that we were covering Ida B. Wells because he was like, how have you not done that I, already? I know. <laughs> you know what? The thing is, with the number of forgotten feminist faves or just feminist fave episodes we've done, she has come up on my list over and over and been like one that I was so, going to do many times. But. She's so known. And then I also, I was explaining to him also that like sometimes I feel like when there's someone that's very well known for something for me, at least, I feel an obligation to almost find out something deeper, find out the why or, you know, things like that. So there's something about people that are like big historical figures where it is kind of daunting to step into that story and tell it in a way that hasn't like well, been I told a million times before, too. Yeah, it's particularly difficult the way that we usually do our feminist fave episodes where they have to be broken up in half because I have 11 pages of notes on Ida B. Wells and I didn't even cover everything. So, I have 19. Yeah. So it's just, <laughs> it's Typed. a lot. And if we were to try to do it in 30 minutes it just it wouldn't happen it's going yeah. to be we're going to be hard pressed to get this in in an hour so we should probably jump right into it we, we not? we've really struggled to hit within an hour for the past like couple Listen, months i, feel, I have so. to get on the road so we literally need to get this show on the road chop chop <laughs> let's do it okay let's talk about the amazing the infamous the one the only ida b wells who i will be referring to as ida i just kept although i think i like wells better i had started with ida because oh. i love that name no I love the name I love the name Ida but I felt like it was disrespectful I started I started referring to her as Miss Ida in my head I don't know because I respect her so much I don't know I just felt like it was too familiar with her that's funny because every time I don't care who it is every time we've done a feminist fave same always go by their first name I'm like same but this Michelle time is, is Shelly to me. OK, you know, <laughs> how many times have we I mean, Rosa Parks was Rosie. And like, how many times have I done this for some reason this time? And she's in Ida. She's Ida in all of my notes. But I felt toward the end of it, I was like, this is disrespectful. This woman has like, I don't know why. It just it, she it felt, does command respect. Yes, it felt you, too you that familiar. Sense. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it felt like I should be if it was her last name or if it was Miss Miss Ida. I feel hmm. like it would be a bit more like I like Miss Ida. 
Personally. I love the name Ida. I think it's so cute. And I also love that her middle name is Bell. Like, I like I that know. that's what the B stands for. Ida Bell Wells. Stop and she it. became friends with um, Bell Squire yes. later in life, too, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of cute. And mm-hmm. again, we've got the middle initial thrown in there. It was, it was a very thing popular at this popular time. Popular with the ladies of this time. I don't know if I would ever want to be known as Madigan F. Haggerty. F is not an attractive middle initial. You know, I feel like B really works well. Like Ida B. Wells, Susan B. Anthony. Like, yeah, Keegan M. Winfield. It's all right, but it's not like, it's not great. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. And my name is just like, I don't go by my full name partially because it's a mouthful. Madigan Haggerty? (laughs) I don't think it is, but I understand what you're saying. (laughs) I, I can I can get that you feel that for yourself. I, I was, will do all my names. I'm like Keegan Marie Winfield all day. What's up? You know what is up? It's funny though because I only have like one day a year that I have extreme pride for my last name, and that was yesterday for us in our time, St. Patrick's Day, uh, where I play that one portion of the Macklemore song Irish Celebration over and over and over again, where he just says "Proud to be a Haggerty." Yeah, you're like yes. I mean, and I wear I wear my "Proud to be a Haggerty" T-shirt, and then that goes in the back of my closet till next year. <laughs> I did get my 23 and me back and I do have a, a good little bit of Irish in there so I feel like I can claim it as well it's most remember English, do you remember what percent um well all of it like I don't even know if I want to say on this podcast uh, but I will because it's the truth I am 58 percent European according to 23 and me uh, and I've seen some very I don't want to cut you off, but I've seen some very surprising 23andMe responses from black friends. Well, you know, that, I'm actually, Where they've been very surprised by I'm, their responses. I'm not responses. that surprised. I'm not that surprised because, obviously, I'm half white, first of all. Uh, so that was always going to be 50%. And then the fact that there's some white on my black side is not surprising. <laughs> like, yeah. that was most likely the product some of historical... some unsavory shit. So that's yeah. not super surprising to me. But um, also one of those things that I feel like even when learning about the the hardships of your family history, there is some sort of like healing through that, I think. You know what I mean? Like being aware of that being your family history could be something I think that would be Oh yes. Yeah. A and healing I, and to it's, know. It's also different, you know, if I were to do it through ancestry, it would be different as well. Like the percentages would be slightly different. But okay. all of that to say that like I am about fifty percent, a little bit over fifty percent um English and Irish. Mostly English. Oh mostly my, English. That- that yeah. you have that much on your mm-hmm. white side where it's oh, yeah. that big of a pre- that is really from what i know that's fairly unusual it's to mostly have like english and then i and then irish as well but like mostly english but yeah yeah mm-hmm. there you go so us irishmen i wonder yes. that's actually really funny i wonder if you would ha- end up having more irish in you than me just through years <gasps> what if that would be crazy right wild, i know wild. i just have i just have the most irish name in the history of irish names from someone who isn't from ireland so and then, <laughs> if the listeners are curious if the listeners are curious i can actually get it out and not right now but i'll get it out and read it at some we point we talked about um, wanting to hear did, it we did discuss that but if you are interested in knowing where in africa it's it's mostly Western and then a little bit of Southern Africa wow. um, with the majority of my African percentage, although it is broken down a lot more than than the European side. Yeah. Um, but the majority comes from Nigeria. So 
There you go. Wow. <laughs> yes. Was that just like the most fun thing to open up and read and it see? It was very cool. It was very cool to see oh the map. Oh, my gosh. Um, and it was cool to compare it to my brother who did it through Ancestry because they are different. Um, slightly different. And... Um, which will happen with siblings, but also I'm wondering if it's just the way that the data is broken down. Yeah. Um, difficult to say, but, but yeah. Okay, spread the word. I want to do a 23 and me. My birthday's in July or Christmas. Oh, do it, do it, do it. Coming up, somebody buy it for me. Because like I, I would get one for myself, but it's one of those things that I just can't get myself to buy. Like I feel like someone would need to get it for me. Anthony bought it for me. So yes, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Um, But they have sa- they have sales all the time. So I would say do it like Christmas yes. or... I've heard that they have a really good Black Friday sale. Yes. Or it's like half do, off. They do it for like Mother's Day and, and other things as well. Like get this for your mom, you know, so... Um, keep an eye out. I will. Look, see for that sort of thing. I will. Okay. Okay. Eight minutes into the episode, let's actually talk about Ida B. Wells. Okay, so she was born on Bowling Farm near Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 26th, 1862. So she isn't a cancer. She's on the Leo side. So upsetting. I have July 16th. Sorry, hold on. That's my dad's birthday, which would not have made me as happy as July 26th. Womenshistory.org says July 16th. Wikipedia said. So does (laughs) biography.com. Oh, no. It's okay. Say it again. Say it again. It is July 16th. (sighs) Which puts her at what? What is she then? She's a cancer. That was actually my due date. So she was born on July 26, 1862. No, no. Did I say 26th again? Yes. Thank God. (laughs) She was born on July 16th, 1862, which is my dad's birthday and my due date, but I was born a week ahead. I'm very disappointed. She's she's a fellow cancer then. She's a fellow cancer woman, woman after my own heart. She is empathetic. She loves her family. She's a bit of a homebody. Water but obviously signs, she did hi. water signs. What, what what did I say to you earlier where I sent you something and you were like, us water signs, we always cry or something like that. I was like, yeah, we're literally made of water. Like it's just leaking out of all of our orifices at all times. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I get mad about people calling Pisces sensitive, but then I'll cry over the dumbest shit. So I'm like, well. <laughs> I mean, I own my shit. I know that I am the biggest crybaby that ever lived. And I wear that as a badge of honor as an adult. So she was the daughter of James Madison Wells, not the president James Madison, not to be mistaken, and Elizabeth, who went by Lizzie Warrington. So James's biological father was a white man who was a plantation owner who had enslaved his mother named Peggy. So he was a product of of rape through enslavement. Um, before his father passed away, James was taken to Holly Springs to become a carpenter's apprentice where he lived as a, quote, hired out slave living in town. So her family were enslaved and she was raised with a lot of those those stories and memories from her father's childhood and things like that. Right. I mean, and she was born into it, although the Emancipation Proclamation happened about six months after her birth. Correct. um, And the family was decreed free on January 1st, 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. um, She was still born into slavery. And so the family, although they were in a much better position than I think of a lot of people who were trying to make their way um, post-slavery, because her father had been a carpenter's apprentice and had that kind of skill yeah. um, that he could use moving forward, it was still 
I'm sure, extremely difficult to maneuver life well, outside yeah, of I slavery. Did, I did read that Lizzie at one point was sold away and separated. Oh, this is when she was young. So when Lizzie was a young child, she was one of 10 children and she was separated from her parents and siblings and tried without success to find them after the Civil War. Sorry, I right. thought that was Ida so, that I was talking about for a second. Yes, but like those deep scars, those deep, deep generational trauma wounds. That's not even, it's not that far removed at all right, for her. Right. You know, it's still very much a present day reality. She was born into it still. Right. You know? I mean, and of course, they're living in Mississippi and Ida is the firstborn of six children. So there's right. six kids and her parents. They're all living in Mississippi as newly mm-hmm. freed African-Americans. So yes. they faced in immeasurable racial exactly. prejudice um, and discrimination, you know. I find what's interesting is that the family at the time when Ida was born lived in this really small uh, house that they called the Bowling Gatewood House, which would later become the Ida B. Wells Museum, which I think is kind of cool. Yes, that's really cool. So her father, James, was involved with the Freedmen's Aid Society, which was an organization that supplied teachers from the north and provided them housing um, and set, set them up to teach in schools in the South for freed, newly freed men and their children. And he also helped to start Shaw University, which was a school for newly freed enslaved people. It's now called Rust College. Yes. And he served on the board of trustees. And both of her parents were very active in politics. Her mother was as well. It really does feel like her parents were kind of, um, they had a partnership which yes. again is something that we've we've discussed many times in talking about these women and their slightly unusual marriages at times. Um, yeah. That it is unusual for a husband and wife to have this kind of working partnership, and it also set Ida up for this future of wanting to be active in politics or just activism in yeah, general. Being active in in the things that she believes in, and also I think having the example of a very strong healthy relationship from her parents also really played into her decision making with her friends her partners Mm -hmm, her lovers things like that because i'm a huge fan of her future husband me too i think he is wonderful so i think that there was she has this self-assurance and self-confidence and self-worth to understand to kind of give her that backbone for what she's fighting for. You know, she has enough self-worth to do it. Yes, and actually, it's kind of interesting. I didn't make a lot of notes about this, but just since we're talking about it now, like later on in her life when she's kind of deeply entrenched in activism, which happened in her early 20s, um, so she's trying to... she, She kept diaries and journals, and she's talking about, like essentially navigating dating as like yeah. a young 20 something um, oh successful I feel like this is like a sitcom you know but this like it's very sex in the city yeah <laughs> young woman with ideals and a career and basically she would it read as something that could be very modern day and that like it was difficult for her to find men who wanted to stick around once they found out that she was so smart and so like capable uh-huh. um and and that was something she really wasn't willing to compromise on she which was would like, be I'm not- a very easy compromise and I think most women did compromise that at absolutely that time. absolutely and she really felt like she could do it all and wanted to have that balance but we'll talk about that um, a little later on. As she gets older, 
Unfortunately, in 1878, James and Lizzie, her parents, died of yellow fever, and her brother would also die of yellow fever shortly after. Luckily, Ida was spared from the disease as she was visiting her grandmother back in Holly Springs. The family had moved at this point, but Ida was visiting her grandmother while her family had contracted the disease. So unfortunately, she lost three family members that year. And she lost them within a matter of days. It was yeah. like the yellow fever took took her parents and her infant brother um, within a matter of days. And she was attending Shaw University where her father taught. Um, mm-hmm. That's where she received her early schooling. And she was 16 at this time. And yeah. she was attending Shaw University. And she had to leave school because... Her siblings, she was the oldest, you know, yeah. her siblings were in danger of being split up amongst family members. They were basically yeah. going to take and, the kids. Or going to different foster homes and things like that. And Ida didn't want that to happen. Right. So at the age of 16, she took on the responsibility of her younger siblings and dropped out of school. She yes. was so resourceful, though. And I love this story. She mm-hmm. convinced a nearby county school administrator that she was 18. She was 16 and was like, no, I'm not. Um, and and said that she was 18 and landed a job as a teacher at a local black school in order to help support her siblings. That would have never worked for either of us. We are both such young looking people. Yeah, like when I look at our photos from when we met and I'm like 19 and you're 21, I'm like, we look like high schoolers. There's no yeah, way. How I mean, did I get into a bar before I was 21? I have no idea. And <laughs> honestly, yeah, like honestly, though, I'm like, they weren't checking that hard. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like my, we were cute um, girls, whatever. <laughs> oh, for that. But I also for Ida like this was the time whenever like children worked in factories you know what I mean that, that's like, true they were yeah, like, yeah. we don't we don't care <laughs> we don't care that's true I mean, so I guess on paper you need to be 18 but if you give us a wink and a nudge they're like can you read and write and teach children how to read and write then precisely we don't care. yeah um but yeah because like my great-grandparents um my grandpa's parents Estel and Esther my great-grandpa <laughs> Estel and my great-grandma Esther um, Wait, what was your gram? Estel? Estel, yeah. E-S-T-H? No. E- E-S-T-E-L? S-T-A-L. Estel, yeah. Estel. Yeah. Estel and Ethel. Esther. And Esther. Oh, my God. Yes. I was going to say, es- e- e- I can't. Estel and Ethel would be a nightmare. Es- e- Estel and Esther is just as bad. <laughs> oh, my yes. God. But she was 15 when they got married, and she lied, and they went, like, a town over, and she was like, yeah. I'm 18, and they were like, okay. And I'm like, there's no way she looked 18. No, there's, there's no, way. no way. Yeah, but you know what? Different times. Different times. <laughs> Doesn't make it right. I wouldn't recommend for any 15-year-olds to get married. Look, it worked for them, but... Uh, that's the exception to the rule it is rare so yeah she was able to keep her family together and while she was working she did get some help from her grandmother Peggy Wells and she would look after her siblings while Ida was working at the school and she was working in black segregated elementary schools and this would be something that would um you know uh, an experience that she would take on with her and remember years down the line in her civil rights activism. 
Yes. So after Ida's grandmother um, passed away, she decided to take her younger sisters and move to Memphis, Tennessee to live with an aunt. Um, her brothers found work as carpenter apprentices. I saw that in several different articles, so I'm not sure if they went with them or stayed where they were and continued to work as carpenters. It sounds, the way I took it was that they stayed where they were and they got jobs there. The reason I think that is because their father was a carpenter's apprentice. I'm wondering if it was just like, because of the location and the name, they were known they were able to get jobs. Right. Maybe and it was a bit more difficult for the women. They do explicitly say that she took her sister. So I'm assuming yes. she left her brothers there. Uh, and for a time, she continued her education at Fisk University in Nashville. She started writing about issues of race and politics in the South, and a number of her articles were published uh, in black newspapers and periodicals beginning at this time, just very low-level stuff. But it wasn't until May 4th, 1884, that Ida, at the age of 21, um, this is kind of the turning point in her activism. So yes. she... Bought a it's ticket. kind of the Rosa Parks story before the Rosa Parks. Right. Look, <laughs> man, everybody has a breaking point, and this was Ida's, okay? And <laughs> I don't blame her. Let's get I into it. <laughs> I don't either. This is my favorite. Yeah. So, well, it's not my favorite because it's awful, but, right. you know. Her response it's, to is, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after <laughs> having bought a first class train ticket to sit on the women's train, and they say that she wanted to sit on the women's train specifically because the women's train was no smoking allowed. And in the mm. African American train, um, it was uh, genders were mixed. And so smoking was allowed. And she was she was like, I don't want to be around that. Yeah. I even saw it referred to as just the smoking car. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the train conductor, she she bought a ticket. She They let her buy a ticket in first yeah. class. So she took a seat in first class. And the train conductor with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad approaches Ida and tells her that she needs to give up the seat that she paid for. And they ordered her to move into the other car. And she refused. And she's like, I'm absolutely not going to do that. I paid for this ticket. I have every yeah. right to be here. And so he starts forcibly removing her from the train. He's trying yeah. to physically remove her. And so she bites him, which I think yep. is like, well, you know what? You're going to get bit. I mean, hey, I got to say, I was just listening to another podcast where they were talking about ways for women to defend themselves in situations. Biting is a great technique to mm-hmm. to fight back with somebody, you know? Your jaw is very powerful. Girls, bite away. Bite away. Yeah, I, I love that she did that. And so yes, it's they smart. did. They did get her off the train, though. They, did they had get her to off the drag train. her off, which mm-hmm. is just like horrible. I've, I've seen too many photos and videos of of such things happening that there are awful images in my head of that. But I can well, imagine that also yeah. being for some again for someone that has as much self worth as she does mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. as much strength as she does, mm-hmm. instead of having that be a way for her to just shy away go into the car that she's supposed to it really was like we said this catalyst for her to want to do even more you know right yeah I mean she has such a strong sense of justice I think that that is something that is extremely clear throughout her entire life and so it makes sense that it was something like this this was unjust you know what I mean like she had a right to be there she had purchased a ticket to be there um, and it wasn't fair and I think that she has a very strong sense of fairness and so when she did get kicked off the train 
She was like, this is some bullshit, first of all. And so she hired a lawyer and sued the Chesapeake, Ohio and Southwestern Railroad Company and won a $500 settlement in circuit court. But as it moved up the ladder, it moved up the chain uh, and the decision was later overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court. And this... This injustice would not stand man. So she <laughs> she picked up a pen um, and she started to write. And she wrote about her experience in The Living Way, which was a black church weekly kind of column newspaper. Right. Um, and because of this, she started gaining some publicity as a writer in Memphis. Like people are actually like, she must have been just such an incredible, eloquent right compelling writer you know yeah definitely I mean there was one part of it where she wrote I felt so disappointed because I hoped such great things for my suit for my people oh god is there no justice in this land for us I think she was I mean it sounds like she was just a very I'm gonna pull out pull that cancer card I think she was a very um vulnerable writer from what mm-hmm. I can see, a very truthful writer. I can see where people would read that, particularly in like a black church newsletter and resonate with that emotion that she writes through very, very well. Well, and, you know, she's also speaking directly to a community that has had similar experiences. Exactly. Um, almost definitely. And so, of course, it's going to resonate with them. Somebody is putting into words what they have felt for so long. And this is also someone who for women in particular, like this is someone who stood up for herself. Like I am impressed with that living as a woman in 2021 because I am so anti-confrontational so often that like I do feel like the inclination when the power dynamic is set up is stacked so far against you. Yeah. Right. That you would just back down and walk away. And she didn't do that. And I think that's interesting already you know exactly and she did start gaining some notoriety for her writing she did continue teaching elementary school but she was offered an editorial position at the evening star in washington dc and began writing weekly articles for the living way under the pen name lola which i oh it was um uh iola 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 that was it. Whatever website I got this from is fucking things up. Well, yeah, I thought it. I thought it was Lola because it looks like Lola because the capital I. <gasps> oh, but that makes I, sense. I listened to someone talking about it and they said Iola. Iola. Which I I've never means. heard that name. I was gonna sing the um, the song Lola from the Barry Manacle Manacle <laughs> Barry Manilow musical Copacabana. But if that's oh, yes. not the pen name, I won't do it. You can sing Iola. Iola, sweeter than a cherry cola. All right. Um, But it was in The Living Way where she started really writing a lot of articles uh, attacking Jim Crow policies, again, discussing her treatment on the train and a lot of other life experiences that she'd had. In 1889, she became editor and co-owner of The Free Speech and Headlight with J.L. Fleming, which was a black-owned paper created by Reverend Taylor Nightingale and was based at the Biale Street Baptist Church in Memphis. That would be her paper for pretty much the rest of her life that she would work at. Yeah, and I want to highlight that she was 27 when that happened. She became Way to make me feel bad, Ida. I know. Um she became a editor and co-owner of yeah. a newspaper 
as a black woman in 1889 at the age of 27. Fucking not fair. I mean, totally fair because she's amazing. But like, I'm going to go cry in a ball now. Um, I know. So unfortunately, because of her politically charged writing, she lost her job as a teacher in 1891, which just makes me so mad because that's that's a teacher that kids need come on it's just so it's upsetting right. but but it she, is not the teacher that the memphis board of education wanted because they don't want somebody who's critici- criticizing them essentially yeah she was criticizing the segregated schools very very openly so like it makes sense like if you're shitting if you're shitting where you eat you know, it might not turn right. out I mean, for you, but but I, but I think that what she did was worth it. Obviously, I'm not saying she shouldn't have done it to save her job, but well, you know, it is, is upsetting. We see this oftentimes with activists, right? Where it's just like the powers that be or these systems, um, because oftentimes in this country, especially, these systems are created to uphold white supremacy like that is part of their purpose and so it's not surprising that the memphis board of education was like nah we can't have you out there making it hot you know yeah but but it does speak to her influence that despite having lost her job she remained super popular and well respected as an educator and writer yeah Um, and she actually just off the strength of her writing not even from her teaching salary really um she made her way into the middle class which again this is an Huge. unmarried black woman <laughs> in the 1880s like that is unheard of essentially yeah. for her to have been as, to- as successful a person as a career woman yes. unmarried you know yes. not relying on on a husband's salary um or or anything else so Definitely. very impressive so I wanted to talk about the events that occurred at the People's Grocery because I yes. feel like that was another really big turning point for her. So in 1889, there was a man by the name of Thomas Henry Moss Sr., who was a black man, and he opened the People's Grocery, which he co-owned with another man. His store was in South Memphis, and it was nicknamed The Curve. Ida was very close to the Moss family and was even the godmother to their first child, Maureen. The People's Grocery did very well and was able to compete with its white competitor across the street, Barrett's Grocery, which was owned by William Russell Barrett. So on March 2nd, 1892, a young black boy named Armour Harris was playing a game of marbles with a white boy named Cornelius Hurst in front of the People's Grocery. The boys got into an argument during a game and began to fight. And the fight did get physical, and apparently, this is according to the section that I read on Wikipedia, it appeared that the black child Harris had the upper hand in the fight, quote unquote. So the white child's father intervened and began to quote thrash Harris. So at that people's grocery employees, William Stewart and Calvin R. McDowell came out of the store and tried to get the adult Hearst off of Harris as people in the neighborhood began to gather. The next day, Barrett, the grocer across the street brought the Shelby County Sheriff's deputy to the people's grocery looking for William Stewart. The other man involved in breaking up the fight, McDowell, greeted Barrett and told him that Stewart wasn't present for the fight. The man responded, blacks are thieves, and hit McDowell with a pistol. McDowell then wrestled the gun away and fired at Barrett, narrowly missing him. McDowell was then arrested and released. On March 5, 1892, a group of six white men, including the sheriff's deputy, took electric streetcars to the People's Grocery, where they were met with a barrage of bullets from inside the store. The sheriff's deputy was wounded, as well as civilian Bob Harold. Hundreds of white people were deputized almost immediately to end what was called by local papers an armed rebellion by black men in Memphis. 
Thomas Moss, the owner of the store, was named as conspiring with McDowell and Stewart, and the three men were arrested and jailed. Around 2.30 a.m. the morning of March 9, 1892, 75 men wearing black masks took the three men from their jail cells at the Shelby County Jail to a Chesapeake, Ohio railroad one mile north of the city and shot them dead. Just before he was killed, Moss said to the mob, tell my people to go west. There is no justice here, which Ida most definitely agreed with. I think that this this event, especially having it be with people that she was so close to, directly affected her activism against lynching. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah 100%. Because this is when she begins really writing about lynching. Like, up yes, until this and, point... And telling people to get the fuck out of the South. <laughs> right. I mean, up until this point... She had been writing about inequality, of course, and like mm-hmm. a lot of civil rights stuff. But what you'll find with Ida B. Wells is that her her personal lived life experience um, is always what she uses yes. to, to in her writings. Like, you know, the first thing she wrote about was her experience on the train. The second thing she wrote about was the inequality in schools. Uh-huh. These are both things that she had direct ties and um, experience with. Definitely. And this, to have somebody in her life that she was so close to. That was family um, Such a close friend, family to her. And again, we're talking about, yes, these are different times and we mature and age differently um, throughout different generations, but this is still a woman in her 20s. You know, so this is, these friendships, these relationships that you have, like, I can't imagine um, going through something like this. And so she began writing not only about this particular lynching um, but also began writing about other lynchings of African Americans that were taking place across the country. She began like an investigative journalist and was you know interviewing people and getting photographs and really like almost becoming a a detective with a lot of these different cases. Right and she was doing so in the south which Uh really put put her life at risk to be traveling south uh, in order to she's traveling south and asking questions right about things that I don't think a lot of white southerners really wanted to be talked about and one of the things that she began to notice when she was doing a lot of her interviewing was the frequency in which black men were being suspected of raping white women so she was starting to kind of see that that Mm -hmm. correlation as being a common um, story Mm -hmm. being told for these lynchings, a, a right. certain excuse. Uh-huh, absolutely. So she gathers as much information as she can. And on October 26, 1892, she publishes her research in a pamphlet titled Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. And, you know, to go along with what you were saying, she is one of the first people to draw a link between this, like, white victimhood, especially, like, of white women um, and violence against black people, basically saying that white people in the South try to justify their actions by saying that they their white women were at risk um, of experiencing sexual violence at the hands of black men. Now, this is well before or not well before, but, you know, pretty far before um, Birth of a Nation, which yes. did we've talked about before um, in our Women in White Supremacy episode and, and several other episodes that basically had the same narrative of saying, like, the Klan are actually heroes because 
they lynched They're this protecting black man, the, but yes. they were protecting this white woman because black men are inherently like sexually deviant and violent. Definitely. Um, um, and on May 2nd, 1892, she actually said, if Southern men aren't careful, a conclusion might be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. So she Ooh. was, yeah, she, well, she was warning these men, like, uh, after what happened to Moss, she was saying, like, get the fuck out of here. Like, they, they are making up these lies and these stories about you. Your lives are going to be ruined. Get out of the South was, well, like, her rallying cry for a right, while. Right, I mean, and unfortunately, like, this excuse, this, like, racist fucking excuse that we saw, um, which, you know, also in that pamphlet, something that was kind of revolutionary that she talks about was that they're using this excuse when actually it's that these white communities are afraid of black economic progress. Um, But this, this excuse that black men are inherently um, violent or hypersexual or deviant. um, That was the same excuse they used for the Tulsa race massacre. It was the same excuse they used for Emmett Till. And it is the same kind of excuse variations on the same theme that you will see today. Um, It's the same Although oftentimes, you know, it's not necessarily framed as sexual deviancy or violence anymore. Um, You still see that same excuse of I was afraid. Exactly. Of a black person just existing, a black man, especially. Well, yeah, there's there's so much misinformation. And I mean, when we talked about eugenics and stuff throughout this year as well, I know we discussed, you know, in medical texts, the inaccuracies about you know, black men's sex organs and brains and Mm -hmm. all of Mm -hmm. this misinformation that has been repeated for generations and generations and isn't being changed. So while it might not be as obvious as the Klan coming and lynching somebody that they that they suppose raped a white woman, um, it's it's at a more broader scale. To me, it's the same as a lot of the um, as, as the police attacks. You know, oh, the same I, yeah, reason why, you know, when yes. I think of Trayvon Martin, um, Stephon Clark, Stephon, yeah, the, the fear that allegedly mm-hmm. their murderers felt in that moment as their justification for for killing a black man, particularly well, black men. Yes, you know. these biases, again, you know, we talked about it in our What's in the News episode when talking about, you know, white male terrorism, but these biases that exist on a cultural level they don't just go away. Nobody is raised in a vacuum and they are reinforced through culture, through media, um, through the way that we just talk and relate yeah. to uh, to people of different cultures. And in this case, black people, black men, um, where you you might not realize it on a yeah. conscious level that this is racist bias. This is unconscious bias. Um, and it's influencing my behavior and therefore my behavior is racist. Exactly. You know? exactly. And so you might sit there and say, I'm not a racist, um, but you have an unconscious bias that makes you more afraid of black bodies just because it's been, been reinforced in culture for so long. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, And during this time, as Ida began to write more and more specifically about these different lynchings, it became more and more vocal. Of course, 
that means that she's going to have more and more enemies. And while she was out of town in New York, a thank God, I know, right? My she, I mean, she missed it on the yellow fever, and she missed out on this raid. So a white mob ransacked the free speech headquarters, destroying the building and all of its contents, including the printing press. Which I was just like, what a loss. Oh, that's got to be expensive. That's what I was thinking, and I have to assume that insurance was not willing to cover these things um so the co well i mean and honestly it would have been hard because the co-owner james l fleming was forced to flee memphis and it was reported that trains were being watched for ida to return so luckily it seems that she she must have been warned or she must have been aware because ida never returned to memphis or i shouldn't say never but after this she did not return to memphis right i did read that she was told that she could not return or that she would be killed that somebody got to her and was able to tell her like hey look you cannot come back here your business has been destroyed um i would so just thought it was ida b wells intuition like she got her spidey senses just like oh i shouldn't go back there could also be that um <laughs> but either way it sounds like she was like fine and yes. so she relocated to Chicago, and she continued her anti-lynching activism. She shared her pamphlet, and it circulated widely. And in 1895, um, she followed up with a more deeply researched pamphlet, the 100-page Red Record. Yes. And in this, she describes lynching in the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation and about black people's struggles in the South just in general. And she talks, you know, the Red Record would eventually point out that lynchings were at their highest between 1880 and 1930, which is a very long um, period of time. And it also included really graphic accounts of specific lynchings that a lot of people in the North up until this point had kind of closed their eyes to, like willful ignorance about the level of violence and horrors that existed in the South. Definitely. um, During this time. Yeah, and she made some really great observations kind of based off of something that Frederick Douglass wrote in an article where he talks about Southern barbarianism and the excuses that white people had during each of these different, these three periods, those being, um, you know, kind of once the Civil War ended during the Reconstruction era and uh, what they were going through now. So Ida kind of went further and stated that once the Civil War ended, white people feared freed black people who were the majority in many areas. Mm-hmm. So they acted to control and suppress them with violence, which we've talked about before. During the Reconstruction era, white people began lynching black people as part of mob efforts to suppress black political activity and reestablish mm-hmm. white supremacy after the war. And Douglas was very similar to Ida B. Wells in the way that he also encouraged people to move out of high-risk areas at the time because the the lynchings were so prevalent in the South during this time that it was becoming unsafe for those people right. to and stay. Right, and it's... Look, man... We have gotten heat on this show, let me just say. Uh, We've gotten heat on this show for telling people to, like, get the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah. (laughs) In in areas that are maybe less um, progressive or more dangerous to certain groups of people. Right. And the criticism that we received with that, which I understand, um, is that, like, we, some of us love living here and we're working to make it a better place. Yeah. 
we want we want to bring progressivism into this place because we love this place. And but. I understand <laughs> that. No, completely. Like Yes. Yes, is I yes. get it. I absolutely get it. But However, I think there are safety measures that one needs to take for their own lives. When Right. You know and, <laughs> and in addition, you know, in addition to that, I think a lot of us fall into this place where on the one hand, I agree. If all of the good people leave, then what's left? Yeah. It's like you're just turning it over. And I understand that. And if that is something that you feel strongly about, then do stay. Fight the good fight. However, I do think that there is oftentimes this misguided notion that it is our responsibility to make sure that a place is becomes more progressive and that we have to do it at great sacrifice to ourselves and our own happiness. Yes. Um, and I, I, I don't think that that's true. Like yeah, you there have was, one there, life. <laughs> yeah. There was a documentary that I watched a while ago where it was about um, like the first integrated prom in like Texas or somewhere it was some southern state but it was like in 2009 they had their first integrated prom it was something crazy like that and then and the doc but it made this turn because there was a a black boy that was killed by a white man and there again it was kind of with the same same kind of story was with his white daughter made certain you know assumptions he was shot as he went away but there was this girl who was one of the main characters in this documentary who was father she was a black woman her father was a black man and he was running to be sheriff of the town and she was talking about the passion that and everything that she's putting into her city and her town and she wants her father to win and she wants to make it a better place but then as the documentary goes on and she, you know, the boy that was killed was actually like her first love. It was her boyfriend. It was her first everything. And so it just and then her father didn't win sheriff. And it was just so disheartening to see this blatant racism in her town that it broke her down to the point where she had to leave. So to me, I think that that's a really good example of like wanting to lo- loving where you're from enough to want to make it better. I totally understand that. But I think that when you st- you need to also take into account what you're willing to put up with and what you can emotionally handle because that's a lot for one person's shoulders if that's what you're thinking. Right. You know? I mean, and and if you feel like this is your calling, then that's different to me. Like if you feel like very passionately about like – I see the potential in this place and I know that I can make it a better place. I think that that's admirable um, and I support that. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing. But I also think that there probably were people even at this time who were like, I'm not going to leave the South. The South is my home. Like, yeah. And, but and it's all and, the, and I understand and leaving it. can be scary too. Like if you're at least where you are even if it doesn't feel safe it's what you know where I can imagine that being told to go north or west would be scary because where's your family where's your friend where's your base you know what I mean like sure completely starting a new life would be really scary but I also understand I'm just thinking for myself I'd be like bye <laughs> right I mean <laughs> getting- there's, there's a balance there I, I think that yeah I see both sides of it yes, and yes. neither is right or wrong but I also do just want to caution people against I feel like we're always we have this kind of like trauma response where we have to be super loyal to a place that's not loyal to us. <laughs> you it's a know, great point. yeah, it's so, a great point. I found it really interesting that 
Ida, at this point, was starting to not be so convinced that playing to the compassion of white Americans would create the change that needed to happen. And she no. concluded that armed resistance was the only defense against lynching, which I'm like, fuck yes. Arm yourselves. You know? In, in this situation, I would say that that is an appropriate response. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> the, this is when the rights to bear arms is something that I'm here for. When it is Oh, but no, 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 no. But they don't want you to... No, 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 no. <laughs> those people to have a right to bear arms, Megan. Exactly. That's exactly. not, they're like, this isn't what the founding fathers meant, okay? Like, they're like, no, no. Um, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, but it was, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's just the Black Panthers, only much earlier. <laughs> um. Yes, yes. I bought a Black Panther t-shirt last <gasps> week. Did uh, you? It's in the mail. It's on its way here. Yeah, I had a I few want- white claws, and I was like, Fuck it. I really want... <laughs> is it the original logo with the panther on it? Yeah. I mm-hmm. want one. I don't know if it would be weird for me to have. Like, I don't know if I could wear... I don't know if it would be weird for me to wear a Black Panther shirt, but I would I at mean, least love the it art. It wouldn't bother me, but you can buy one on melaninapparel.com. That's where I bought mine. So. I love it. I just, mm-hmm. like... I guess, like, my, my fear is, like, having it just look very... Appropriative. Yeah, I'm just yeah. like, because for me, I'm a huge fan of the Black Panthers and I love them, but I don't want to wear that and have people automatically, I don't know. It makes me, they it would make have, me feel weird. They also have free Huey shirts with the that's, giant um, panther on them too. So. That's the shirt that I will wear. I will yeah. wear, that I think I would maybe get, although... Maybe not everybody would know what that logo is, and then that would be like a nice in-talking conversation. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, so um, Okay, so... Sorry. No, you go. So Ida is in it at this point as mm. far as civil rights activism is concerned, right? Like, she is well-known as an anti-lynching activist at this point. She's um, famous. And she's she's famous. Yeah, she's famous across the country. Um, you either love her or hate her. Guess who hates her? Love Racist. me or hate me. I'm still an obsession. Love me or hate me. That is the question. Wow. I forgot <laughs> about that song. Um At the 1893 World's Fair, there was a ban against African-American exhibitors, Mm -hmm. and she led the opposition against that. Uh, She also began speaking in Britain and spreading the awareness of lynching violence to an incredibly sympathetic audience. I was going to say, the English were aghast at what she was there to say. Yeah, They were like, we keep our racism quiet. Yeah, we're going to wait a while, and then Meghan Markle is going to get the brunt of it. We're holding on to it a little bit. So she made a couple visits. She made two visits to Britain to give these different speech tours. And she was invited by a woman named Catherine Impey and another by the name of Isabella Fivey Mayo. And I did a little side googling on both of them because they're interesting. So Impey was a Quaker abolitionist and she published a journal Anti-Castle, which I would assume would be like an anti-royal journal of some sort which sounds pretty like risky at the time and had attended several of Ida's lectures on her visits to America and just really loved what Ida had to say so invited her to come to Britain and then this woman Isabella Fivey Mayo was a well-known writer and poet but wrote under a man's name Edward Garrett so that's how she rose to popularity and so these women invited her to come and give these different um speaking tours across Britain. And in 1894, before leaving for her second trip to Britain, she met with William Penn Nixon from the Daily Inter-Ocean, the only white newspaper that persistently denounced lynching. 
Nixon asked Ida to write for their paper while she was in England, and with that, she became the first black woman to be a paid correspondent for a mainstream white newspaper, which I thought Mm -hmm. was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, she gathered audiences of thousands when she was in, like, England, Scotland, and Wales, and so many of them were horrified like we said by by what she was talking about but also she would show very graphic photographs of actual lynchings in America to really generate that response from her audience and it was very effective right well I mean and you can see a lot of those photographs still exist and I think one of the things that really shocked people in the north and um, overseas is not only the photos of the lynchings themselves. I'm going to just say right now, be careful if you your curious little mind wants to go Google pictures of these because um, I've seen them and it's really hard to stomach. So just be prepared before you decide to go look at them. I have, you a, know? I have a problem when it comes to... No, I do too. Cry. I always do this. I always, I always do, do, it. do it. Like I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like a horrible person partly... But I also, I don't know what it is. Like, what's wrong with me? Too. Why do I, I need do to too. see those things? I like, don't know. I don't, don't. I don't want to. <laughs> like, I don't think it's fun or great, but there's something, whenever something happens, every podcast I listen to, I'm like, blah, 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 crime scene. I don't know what's mm-hmm. wrong with me. No, I do it too. But I just wanted to give that quick warning because they exist yeah. and they're out there. Um, but I think that part of what was appalling for people was not only the graphic nature of the lynchings themselves, but it was also the gaiety around um, the white people who are also in the pictures. Yes. Who Who are so completely unbothered, if not excited by this. And um, I can imagine that that was probably hard to see or like took people If that's not the kind of racism you're used to, like the overt violence that was occurring mm-hmm. in the South. I can imagine. And just no remorse. Just exactly. no remorse, clearly. It, it's similar to the know. way that we view, view it now. You know what I mean? As, uh, again, as these so are horrifying. people. Yeah, again, these are, sorry to interrupt you. No. Again, these are people who like their racism quiet, okay? <laughs> they like it over tea and crumpets. I was going to say, they, they just, want... they sprinkle it in their tea. They're not going to show it to you. They <laughs> you are know? not trying to be like, racist with a capital R. They're just going right? to colonize like, the fuck out of you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then they're going to be like, I don't understand why she's so upset. Oh you my know? God. Have you seen the um, pictures of um, William and Kate being like carried on uh-huh. one of their visits? Oh God. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's I don't, terrible. I don't want to laugh at it. But when it's like, I've just seen the meme where it's like, the royal family isn't racist. And then it's those photos below it. And it's just Ooh. like, Yikes, on many bikes. Um, So she was so successful on her London tour or her Britain tour that in 1894, she helped create the London Anti-Lynching Committee, uh, which was the reportedly first anti-lynching organization in the world. So she came for like, she came two years in a row and made this such a big issue for them, that they created the first anti-lynching organization, which I They're think like, is so it's not crazy. Even as big a problem over here, but we're gonna create. It's so appalling but to us that we're gonna create an organization. It's and amazing, I'm not and it was like dukes and ladies and archbishops and twenty members of parliament that started this thing. Like right. her influence on these very well-off, high society white people is pretty astonishing. With mm-hmm. with her methods, you know. Oh. Yes, certainly. And I also do want to say, 
I'm not saying that lynchings didn't happen in the UK. Right. I'm absolutely certain that they did happen. Um, I'm just saying that it's interesting that the UK, given how big of an issue it was in the United yeah. States, that the UK were the ones who were like, we should do something about this. Yes. <laughs> you know? I think it's um, ama- especially like to almost kind of get involved in like other people's business too, where I feel like, like, like you said, I'm sure that there was enough of an issue in the UK for it to be needed. But also it to me seems like they were willing to kind of stick their nose in America's business, which I mm-hmm. think is a pretty bold thing to do. Yeah, you know? especially for people who are that like, excuse me, like, you know, like kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Outwardly polite. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So on June 27th, 1895, she married, Ida married mm-hmm. an attorney named Ferdinand L. Barnett. I like him a um, lot. I do too. So they got married at the Bethel AME Church in Chicago. And at the time, Ferdinand was a widower with two sons. Yes. So he lived in Chicago. He was not only an attorney, but he was also a civil rights activist and journalist. He spoke widely against lynchings and for and for civil rights of African Americans. Um, they actually had met a couple of years back when they were working together on a pamphlet protesting, again, the the lack of black representation at the world's Columbian, yeah, world's Co- Columbian, Columbian exhibition. exhibition in Chicago in 1893. Yeah. Um, he had founded the Chicago Conservator, uh, the, which was the first black newspaper in Chicago in 1878. And Wells or Ida began writing for the paper in 1893 and later acquired partial ownership of the paper. Yeah, so and, and became editor at that point, too. So, Oh, yes, that's right. You know, like we said of Ida's parents, you know, their their marriage, Ida and Ferdinand's, was very much that of a partnership. In an mm-hmm. interview, Ida's daughter, Alfreda, said that the two had like interests and their journalistic careers were intertwined, which to me, that's like, if it's a positive relationship, having a good, like, working and personal relationship with someone, I feel like is, like, most people's goal. Where a right, person can was, understand you to that point, you know? Yeah, it was unusual at the time. Oh, you know, like, course. she... He really encouraged her, although, you know, she wanted to be a wife and mother. So in addition to his two children from the previous marriage, they had four more. So a total of six. So they had Charles Herman, Ida Bell Wells Barnett Jr., which Uh I love that they chose of all of them. They chose a junior that was a woman I, I feel know like that doesn't happen very often yeah I um, wonder if um I believe Ferdinand's first son though was Ferdinand was Jr. also a junior yes yeah but for women oftentimes Still pretty even rare if even if a woman names her daughter after herself she will rarely put the junior at the end of it because that is point. usually reserved for men so I love that they made that decision and they also had Alfreda so she had a difficult time While her husband encouraged her to continue working, um, again, very unusual at the time, usually when even when a career woman got married, they would usually settle down, quote unquote, and stop working. Um, But 
he encouraged her to continue to work. And she did. She experienced what a lot of, I think, modern day working women experience. Yeah. Which is that very difficult challenge of being able to split your time between your family and your work life. So, yeah. Susan B. Anthony once called her distracted. I'm which like, I'm like, OK, Susan. Fuck <laughs> you, lady. I, I saw that, too. And I was just like, that's that's some pretty like shitty. That's I mean, a shitty thing to say. Because excuse me, Susan. Ida was bringing, like, so she just had her first son, Charles, in 1896, and still had to do her, like, speaking tours and travel, so she just brought her infant did, son with by the her. Way. So, of course, she was distracted. She yes. was splitting her attention between two things. So, fuck you, Susan. Did she get it done? Uh, okay. Yes, she did, Susan. <laughs> <sighs> so... During this time, though, and I, I love this, too. I mean, again, it's like her personal experience really does inform her activism and what she goes on to do. Because during this time, she was like, you know what? Black women have a real hard time being able to do it all and yeah. have it all. So she established Chicago's first kindergarten pr that prioritized black children. Yeah. Um, well, and she also was like from her own experience as a teacher in segregated schools and also seeing her children begin to come of school age. She just wasn't impressed with the educational opportunities that her children were getting when she knew from experience that white children were receiving a different education. And she was saying that we have to create our own opportunities ourselves and that's why she created a kindergarten that was for black children in particular to make sure that they could receive a quality education just like their white classmates would right which is i mean still an attitude that exists to this day uh, 100%. it's just like look, we'll we'll do it ourselves then because uh -huh. like nobody's gonna step in um and do it for us so we are going to do it ourselves yeah um and after some brutal assaults on the black community in Springfield, Illinois in 1908, um, which is a whole other thing. But Ida decided at that point that she needed to take action. Um, and so she joined a special conference for an organization that would later become the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And she is considered to be a founding member of the NAACP, but even though... <laughs> Um, there were rifts there. I mean, we've had conversations about the NAACP. Yeah. Um, in the past, I mean, it's the same issue that has come up week after week after week talking about the things that went on in the first wave. Yeah. These organizations were just not very intersectional. No, and there Ida was no was space also, for black women. Right. And Ida was also a very get the job done kind of woman. And I feel like both within suffragist circles and within the newly formed, what would become the NAACP, um, it was oftentimes what was advocated for was very incremental change. Yes. And she um, was not willing to wait. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to 1893 because this is kind of when she becomes involved a bit in the women's movement a little bit more, kind of like you had mentioned where she, you know, would butt heads with some of these ladies as time went on. So there was this thing called the women's club movement, which I wasn't, I'm sure we discussed in the past, but it didn't ring a bell with me. Um, so I guess it was just kind of like a popular thing at the time to create these women's clubs to um, kind we of. We did discuss it in our first wave feminism episode. That yes. was three years ago, Keegan. Yes. <laughs> I know. Um, oh, yeah, I know. about it was a way to kind of, you know, get women more involved in their community and politics and things like that. So she 
uh, organized the Women's Era Club, a first-of-its-kind civic club for black women in Chicago, and it would later be renamed the Ida B. Wells Club in her honor. After her death, the Ida B. Wells Club would advocate for a housing project in Chicago and named it after Ida, making history in 1939 as the first housing project named after a woman of color, which is really cool. In 1896, she took part in the meeting in Washington, D.C. that founded the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, and she helped organize the National Afro-American Council, serving as its first secretary. And this is my question, because we talk about this with just about every feminist leader. They are in charge of like 10 organizations. How are they in charge of all of these things at once? (laughs) I mean, look, if I didn't have a day job taking up about one fourth of my brain space maybe (laughs) you'd be president of this and secretary of this and co-owner and editor and writer and speaker and traveler and mother and wife I'm exhausted thinking about it it's a lot it's a lot but I feel like I feel like a lot of the same skill sets are probably used in a lot of these jobs so I think you could do it. I think you could do it if it was all you had to do. Yeah. Um, but even then, I say all you had to do, like it's not a lot. <laughs> it's and it whatever. Is, it is quite a lot, especially so with four, four to six children at home. Oh, get, my You know, depending God. on how old the oldest ones were. Definitely. You know, it's a lot. So it's at this point in my notes where... This week's episode is intersecting a bit with last week's episode, but I do find it important to mention again because now we are telling it from Ida B. Wells' perspective. So she, like we said, was often in conflict with white suffrage organizers, mainly because she was not willing to drop her her causes for the sake of white women. You know, she was very much in her convictions, which made her very unpopular with a lot of white feminists. And in this case, Frances Willard, who we discussed last week. So... If we remember from last week, the two women traveled separately to Britain for speaking tours and Willard was promoting temperance and women's suffrage and Wells called her out for not calling attention to lynching in the United States. Ida then turned the criticism from Willard in her favor, portraying it as another example of white leaders' attempts to, quote, crush an insignificant colored woman. So Frances Willard's response worked in her favor. It was kind of the way that she intended for that side to respond. And it actually opened a lot of people's eyes to that behavior as well, which I think is really great. There was even a whole section in the red record where Ida shows the differences between herself and Frances Willard, which I'm like, it's petty as shit and I love it. There is a whole chapter called Miss Willard's Attitude, where she condemned Willard for perpetuating the myth that black men were a danger to white women, when in fact, historically, it has been uh, white men who have been predatory toward black women. Right. I mean, I think this is one of the first examples that you see of someone really pointing out intersectionality and saying, like, um, we are not the same. Like, we are both women and we both need our rights as women. Um, But your experience as a woman and, you know, your experience within womanhood is not the same as my experience. Which is, and and her talking about that is what furthered the black feminist cause at the time like it was kind of the birth of that understanding of separating themselves from the white feminists and having some power within themselves and knowing that they could be different they didn't have to glob onto what the white suffragists were doing necessarily 
Right. So we can jump forward. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, I'm like, there's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Um, So I really quickly, I don't know. We don't need to get into this if we don't want to, but I made this note. And so I want to say it. Um, In 1908, Ida, her husband and members of their Bible study group founded the Negro Fellowship League, which they called the NFL, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) The original NFL. (laughs) It's the original NFL is what I have written in bold red lettering in my notes. And I was like, oh, my God. We should take it back. I know, know? right? That's what I was thinking. But it, it was actually really cool. So it was like this settlement house in Chicago where they rented the space where there was like a reading room and a library and activity center and even a shelter that was designated for young black men who were turned away at other shelters because of segregation laws so it was a place for the black community to come and feel at home and to learn and to support each other and Mm -hmm. um they also advocated for women's suffrage they supported the republican party of illinois they helped people find jobs and other entrepreneurial entrepreneurial am i saying that entrepreneurial Yes, there you go. I was like, Nuriel, opportunities in Chicago for those who were uh, moving to the north from southern states in particular, they would kind of help them get on their feet and find a job and things like that. And that's very cool. I didn't even read about that. Oh, really? Yeah, I found it really mm-hmm. interesting. Yet, yeah. yet another thing she started. <laughs> so by 1909, Ida is the most prominent anti-lynching campaigner in the United States. And in the years that follow, she turned her focus onto more solidly onto black women's suffrage. So Wells and her white colleague, Bell Squire, went on to organize the Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago on January 30th, 1913. And it is one of the most important black suffrage organizations in Chicago at the time. Yeah. The Alpha Suffrage Club was founded as a way to further voting rights for all women, to teach black women how to engage in civic matters, and to work to elect African-Americans to city city offices. And two years after its founding, the club played a significant role in electing Oscar DePriest, who was the first African-American alderman in Chicago. Yeah. So she is becoming more um, vocal and active within these women's circles. Yeah. I think she's also discovered probably it has a lot to do with um, her interactions with suffragists like Frances Willard. Um, she has discovered, again, there's this need that needs to be met. Uh, we need to create a space yeah, for it because it no one seems, else is going to do it for it, us. Yeah, she really starts to get into politics and law a bit more here. And she she even tries to kind of integrate herself into politics. At one point years later, she would actually run against Oscar de Priest and would lose against him for another election, which I found interesting. It's kind of like, she helped you. <laughs> Help her, right. you know. Um, well, there's that sexism, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. And, of course, we've mentioned this, I think, every episode this month. Mm-hmm, uh, ni- <laughs> 1913 was also the year of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, led by Susan B. Anthony, where they were organizing a parade in D.C. Uh, the day before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson, where when Ida and her fellow delegates from Chicago attended, they were told that they would have to march in the back to keep the delegation entire 
entirely white, as was quoted in what I read, and that all black suffragists were told to walk at the end of the parade in what was called the color delegation. So as we all know, Ida, you know, waited with the spectators patiently as the march began and stepped into the white Illinois delegation line as they passed, and she linked arms with her fellow white suffragists, Squire and Virginia Brooks, for the rest of the parade. Which is amazing, a and there is badass. actual. I mean, there are photos of this. Love it um, as well. Which it's it's incredible. I mean, I think that she had a real. I don't want to say a lack of fear because courage is not the absence of fear. Yeah. I'm sure there was fear. I'm sure there was apprehension, um, but it was doing this thing anyway because I think her sense of justice outweighed her sense of fear. Definitely, you know, definitely. in situations like this. So throughout the 1920s, she continued to advocate for women and for black people, and she continued to push for the right to vote. Um, She did lose the presidency of the National Association of Colored Women in 1924 to the more diplomatic Mary Bethune, who... Who's, I mean, a titan in her own right. Right, right? of course. But, but we love Ida in this story. We love Ida. <laughs> and also, I think that saying the phrase more diplomatic. Says again, a lot. I, I think people really wanted this. And you see it now. You see mm-hmm. it today in, in our politics. You see it a lot within the Democratic Party of yeah. today. Um, this push for very incremental change. They don't want to say defund the police. Um, yeah. right? They want to say, like, what teeny tiny things can we do to make progress, even though that doesn't really work. But I think people are very scared of big change. I, and so Yeah, there seems to be a... a- a tendency to lean toward the safer choice in their opinions. So that would mean maybe somebody who is, in their eyes, quieter, which may mean less threatening if we think of the Mm -hmm. racist stereotypes of black women through history. Being referred to as diplomatic to me sounds a lot like they were willing to bend to either the needs of whether it be the men in their circles or the white women in their circles, it, she seems like she might have been a safer choice. I don't know much about, you know, this whole election or the background or even Mary Bethune in general, but when I hear that kind of language, to me, that rubs me the wrong way. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, that's politics, baby. baby. So yeah. in 1930, um, she did seek an elective office running as an independent for a seat in the Illinois Senate. Uh, This election, and maybe there was another one as well, um, but this election was against Adelbert Roberts, who actually beat her. He was the Republican Party candidate, which again, we're going to reinforce Republican Democrat flipped at this time. So just think about that in your mind. Yes. Um, But she did run as an independent. He ran under like the major party ticket, which is probably why she was beaten at that time exactly yeah and it was in 1928 that she did run against um oscar de priest for a spot as a delegate at the nas- at the republican national convention but she oh, had go. lost that mm-hmm. out to him so also in 1928 is when she began writing her autobiography crusades for justice and unfortunately it was in 1931 march 25th coming up 1931 where ida died of kidney failure at the age of 68 in chicago and she was buried in oakwood cemetery in chicago's south side did that seem like rushed to you when you were taking notes or was it just me because it was like she's doing shit she's doing shit she's gone 
Well, I think it was fairly sudden. <laughs> yes. I think it was fairly sudden. I don't think it was a thing where she was sick for a very long time. No. Or that they knew she was sick she for a long time. She just ran for office the year before. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like this, yeah. It's such... When things like... Unexpected deaths are obviously always horrible, but there was something very jarring to me. We're like, she's doing this. She's doing that. Oh, she's gone now. Like it well, is when me, there's someone who's putting that much work in. It's she's just only 68 yes. as well. Like to me, like I'm like, I know that it was the 1930s and 68. I mean, it's not a young person by any means, but it's also not like a super old not person old, either. Yeah. Um, My mom is she, offended. She's almost 70. Well, <laughs> Sorry, Liz. You're Um, old. She knows she's old. So she had begun writing her autobiography, like you said, Uh who stayed for justice, um, but she never finished this book. And so it was posthumously published after having been edited by her daughter, Alfreda Barnett Duster, Mm -hmm. in 1970. Yeah, which Um, created this like resurgence of Ida B. Wells' popularity during the civil rights movement of the 1970s. And I think that, you know, her autobiography being published during that time probably has a lot to thank for why we have so many people that know know about her, why she's become 100%. such a name, because oh, yeah. it was during a time, I think, where her literature, her words were so important and probably spoke to so many different activists that it's well, it not surprising. Yeah, it's not surprising yeah. to me that she would become this huge figurehead posthumously for the second wave. Right. And so she did rename that book Crusade for Justice, colon, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. which I would love to read. It's actually going to be on my thing. list um, of something that I would love to read. It's in my Amazon cart. <laughs> so on May 4th, 2020, so just last year, mm-hmm. less than a year ago, she was posthumously awarded a Pulitzer Prize um, with the special t- citation for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. And so, I mean, that's the highest award you can possibly get yeah. as a writer. She had more posthumous awards and things named oh, oh, after yes. her could, than anyone. We could go on forever. I started listing all of them until I scrolled down and I was like, no, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but the Pulitzer... Uh, the Pulitzer Prize Board announced that it would donate at least $50,000 in support of the of Wells' mission to recipients who would be announced um, at a later date. So I don't know who all received that money, um, but I thought that that was a really cool thing. And it's amazing for obviously have been, having been such an influential um, writer for her to have received that award posthumously is really incredible it's one of those moments where i really really do hope that there is some sort of afterlife there is some sort of spiritual afterlife for people to finally be able to like feel the love that they maybe didn't receive during the time that they were alive you know that's just the biggest thing when i hear about these you know posthumous awards that makes me so sad it's like those people weren't there to to see the full reward of the work that they'd done you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, she really is such a pillar of our history. A man by the name of Molefi Kete Asante, an African-American professor and philosopher, added her to the list of 100 greatest African-Americans in 2002. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree. I think that her work can't be overstated. Mm-hmm. I It's not overrated in any way. Like, she 
she did the work. She put the work in. Yeah. And, and, and what she was able to accomplish, not only as a African-American person who was born um, into slavery, but also a woman. Yeah. Uh, is just beyond. It's just beyond. Yeah. I just looked up... Um when her husband passed away and it looked like he lived for another five years after Ida passed away. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of kids to take care of. He's got two, he's widowed by two women. Right. And I do believe, I think he was older than her he, as well. I mean, I would assume marriage, so because he so. started that paper in like 1878. Yeah. So, so he must have been pretty old. He was born, he passed away. He was born in 1852. He was 84 when he passed away. So he was 10 years older than her. Yeah. He actually passed. It's funny. So she passed away March 15th, 1931. 25th. 25th. Sorry. March 25th, 1931. He passed away March 11th, 1936. And he's yeah. also at Oakwood Cemetery in the south side of Chicago. And I think it says he went on to be a judge, too, which is pretty cool. That is very cool. Um, So in June 2020, during the George Floyd protests in Tennessee, protesters occupied outside the area of the Tennessee state capitol, and they redubbed it Ida B. Wells Plaza. Mm -hmm. The Memphis Memorial Committee, alongside the Neshoba Community Center, will be seeking to honor Ida B. Wells um, as a prominent figure in Memphis's history by installing a statue in her memory. So that is Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells. <laughs> I think we've probably been asked to cover Ida B. Wells at least three or four times throughout the year. So I hope that everybody who has been patiently waiting for us to talk about her is glad that we have finally done so. I'm glad that we've finally done so. Me too. We definitely hit some like really heavy hitters this month. We kind of covered like the big names of the first wave, most definitely. You know, we did well, a, apparently we're not done, so. I know, I know, right? I was just thinking, I'm like, because we've kind of almost gone in this, like, theme where it's like something we talked about a lot in previous episodes go in, goes into the next one. And I was just thinking, like, we did a garrison where we talked a lot about Frederick Douglass. We did, you know, Temperance and Willard and Carrier Nation. And I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do next figure week. it out. We'll all be surprised, I'm sure. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our fourth out of five weeks of Women's History Month and our Ida B. Wells coverage. If there's anything that you would like for us to talk about in the future, you all have such great suggestions. Please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go on the group page and chat with the other listeners and then go to the business page and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way that you can help us out and be seen for us to get more listeners. And we really, really, really appreciate it when you do so. You will be featured on our Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday. Fun fact, my mouth fills with so much spit when I do that because I don't take a (laughs) breath. I feel like the grossest human being in the world. Do I sound like my mouth is full of spit when I do that? No, you don't at all. Not to me. Yes. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to raise on. Bye.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.